Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for September 24, 2017. Our first announcement this week is from Peter Korn, who is an accessibility architect at Amazon. This announcement was posted by Sharon Lovering on the ACB Leadership List. Amazon brings new accessibility features, including Braille input and output for Fire tablets and magnification for Fire TV for blind and visually impaired customers. Since launching in late 2015, Amazon has brought the VoiceView screen reader to tens of thousands of customers and made finding Kindle content easier and more accessible. Amazon now announces updates to its Fire tablets and Amazon Fire TV, supporting its blind and visually impaired customers. First, Amazon is adding Braille input and output support to Fire tablets. With this update, VoiceView customers can read Kindle eBooks, browse the web, and otherwise interact with their Fire tablet using a Bluetooth-connected Braille display. Customers can both input and read text using English contracted and uncontracted Braille, unified English Braille, and computer Braille codes. VoiceView supports a rich array of Braille cord commands, including cords to navigate by character, word, control, HTML link, HTML section, HTML list item, and HTML form control as well as jump to key parts of the Fire Tablet user interface, such as Home, Back, App Switcher, and the Notification and Quick Actions shade. There are also cords to quickly bring up the VoiceView settings pane and invoke the Braille Find command. Today, supported Braille displays include BOM, HumanWare, and the new Orbit Reader 20. Braille support is being delivered throughout the month of September to 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th generation Fire tablets as a free over-the-air update. Additionally, Amazon is adding magnification to Amazon Fire TV. Customers will now be able to magnify their Fire TV user interface up to 10 times. The magnification... The magnified view will automatically follow the part of the screen you are interacting with, or you can manually pan through this. Well, Adam, I'm going to read this again. This is ridiculous. This is Sound Prints for the week of November 24, 2017. This is Sound Prints for the week of September 24, 2017. First up this week is an, an announcement from Peter Korn, an accessibility architect at Amazon. This announcement was posted by Sharon Lovering on the ACB leadership list. Peter writes, Amazon is bringing new accessibility features including Braille input and output for Fire tablets and magnification for Fire TV for the blind and visually impaired customers. Since launching in late 2015, we have brought the VoiceView screen reader to tens of thousands of customers and made finding Kindle content easier and more accessible. Today, I am delighted to announce updates to Amazon Fire tablets and Amazon Fire TV. 
supporting our blind and visually impaired customers. First, we are adding Braille input and output support to Fire tablets. With this update, VoiceView customers can read Kindle eBooks, browse the web, and otherwise interact with their Fire tablet using a Bluetooth-connected Braille display. Customers can both input and read text using English contracted and uncontracted Braille, unified English Braille, and computer Braille codes. VoiceView supports a rich set of Braille cord commands, including commands to navigate by character, word, control, HTML link, HTML section, HTML list item, and HTML form control, as well as jump to key parts of the Fire Tablet user interface, such as Home, Back, App Switcher, and the notification Quick Actions Shade. There are also cords to quickly bring up the Voice View Settings pane and invoke the Braille Find command. Today, supported Braille displays include Balm, Humanware, and the new Orbit Reader 20. Braille support is being delivered throughout the month of September to 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th generation Fire tablets as a free over-the-air update. Additionally, we are adding magnification to Amazon Fire TV. Customers will now be able to magnify their Fire TV user interface up to 10 times. The magnified view will automatically follow the part of the screen you are interacting with, or you can manually pan around the screen. Fire TV magnification also works in concert with the Voice View screen reader, so you can use both at the same time. Magnification is being delivered as a free over-the-air update throughout the month of September to all existing Fire TV customers and customers who have a Fire TV Edition Smart TV. As I always say, it's still day one for accessibility at Amazon, and we will continue to refine these experiences for all customers across our product lineup. Let us know how you are using Braille and magnification at device-accessibility at amazon.com. We'd love to hear from you. Peter Korn Our next announcement concerns the new iOS 11 platform that just came out this week. The following information was posted by Joey Couch on KCB News, and we thank him for forwarding this information. Get yourself up and running quickly on iOS 11 with Hadley's new iFocus videos. The purpose of making updates available for your iPhone's operating system is to improve your experience, but even changes for the better can throw you for a loop if you don't know what's changing. To ease your transition into iOS 11, Douglas Walker from Hadley has updated their iFocus videos with instructions that incorporate the new operating system features. What's changed? iOS 11 introduces several new features that are explained in these videos. 1. Adding control center items. 2. Navigating the Today screen. 3. Navigating the News for You. 4. Adding a publication to news. iOS 11 also slightly changed how other things work, so Douglas updated instructions for these videos too. Number 5. Accessing the Control Center. 6. Searching and downloading from the App Store. 7. 
navigating the notification center. 8. Exploring the news app. 9. Selecting, copying, and pasting text. 10. Arranging apps. One thing I really like in iOS 11 is enhanced dynamic type. This allows you to enlarge text across all Apple's native apps, including settings. Shows, once again, how Apple really is dedicated to making their devices accessible to everyone. From Douglas Walker, iFocus Instructional Video Program Leader, Assistive Technology Specialist for Hadley Institute, formerly the Hadley School for the Blind. The July program at the American Printing House for the Blind Museum reintroduced the world to Mac and Bob, a very influential and forgotten pair of musicians from the Kentucky School for the Blind. Mac and Bob attended KSB a hundred years ago, and they went on to do big things in country music. Adam Rushevel attended the program at APH in July, and he brings us an edited version of this very interesting presentation on page two. And Illinois listeners, listen up. There's even a surprise tie to the Illinois School for the Blind. With Harvey, Irma, and Maria taking center stage this past month as furious hurricanes, our thoughts turn to groups providing disaster assistance and relief to those in need. We often think of the Salvation Army as bell ringers at Christmas or the thrift store where we can find used furniture. On September 12, the Louisville Downtown Lions Club was treated to a short presentation about the many faces of the Salvation Army, and we thought you would enjoy finding out more about those faces of this well-known organization. Listen in on page 3. And on page 4 is the Sound Prince calendar. Page two. I want to welcome everyone here today to our 12th season of Bards and Storytellers on behalf of the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind. My name is Mike Hudson. I am the director of the museum and I will be your moderator and host. Um, the Kentucky School for the Blind just turned 175 years old this year. And uh, we're pretty proud of that. It was founded in 1842 in Louisville by two brothers. Bryce and Otis Patton. And that year, the Pattons reported in their annual report that they were teaching, quote, reading and spelling from books printed in embossed letters, arithmetic taught mentally and by the use of the slate, geography taught orally and by means of maps, in raised characters, writing, and music. And they went on to say, quote, music is a very important one in the education of the blind, as it is not only a source of great pleasure, but affords to many of them a respectable means of support as organists, tuners of instruments, and teachers. By 1845, the brothers had hired a third teacher, Joseph Smith, as their first full-time music teacher. And the annual report again that year emphasized that, quote, music offers the best means of gaining an honorable livelihood. By uh, 1848, the school had an organ and four pianos. And that was true in almost all of the historic residential schools for the blind around the United States. That emphasis on music has produced many, many fine musicians, singers, songwriters, and performers over the years. And that is the inspiration for our Bards and Storytellers series, now 
uh, in its 12 seasons. Bard as a storyteller celebrates those performers and the traditions of performance excellence in the blind community. Now our subjects today of our Bards and Storytellers program is an interesting pair that, I will admit, we didn't even know existed until a few months ago. Robert Gardner and Lester McFarlane were two mountain boys who met at KSB around the time of World War I and went on to a really fascinating stage and recording career. And as you'll learn shortly, they did some unique things. And we're excited today to have Dr. Tom Adler, a folklorist, historian, author, museum guy, banjo picker. Uh, he's going to be here today to help us rediscover this fascinating duo. Now, I've known Tom and his wife Betsy for a long time. And uh, even when they didn't know me, I was a big fan of theirs. Betsy was the grants program officer at the Kentucky Humanities Council right before I took that job, way back in 1992. And Tom, well, Tom has done just about everything. My primary memory of him was as the founding director of the International Bluegrass Museum in Owensboro. But Tom's done a lot of other things. He uh, has a doctorate in folklore. He's, uh, as I said, a, a bluegrass banjo player. Uh, the author, author of Bean Blossom, the Brown County Jamboree, and Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Festivals. And now retired from the University of Kentucky, he lives in Lexington with his wife, Betsy, and often performs with acoustic string bands, Liberty Road, and the Blue Eagle Band. Tom, come up and help us rediscover Mac and Bob. Thank you very much, Mike, and it's an honor for me to be here. Uh, as, as Mike said, um, Mac and Bob, as they were known later in their career, were really Lester McFarland and Robert A. Gardner. They were both blind from birth, and uh, Lester was blind because of an optic nerve that had never developed. Robert had glaucoma, so as a child he was able to see lights and shadows, but he later developed cataracts, which blinded him completely. Uh, later, in, very late in his life, he had his cataracts removed, and at that point, Robert could again see uh, lights and shadows. Interestingly, they both grew up in Appalachian areas of the country that were very rich in traditional and old-time music, and they met in 1915 here at the Kentucky School for the Blind. It's important, I think, to remember how young they were, very young. Mac at that time was 13 years old. Bob was 18 years old. I'm showing a map right now of Kentucky and Tennessee that reveals their birthplaces, both in the eastern part of those respective states. Gray, Kentucky is where Mac McFarland was from, and Oliver Springs, Tennessee, which is very near Knoxville both in, as I say, Appalachian regions, very rich in traditional music. So as kids, they probably heard a lot of old traditional songs. When they came to the Kentucky School for the Blind, they were both given formal musical training, as part of the program often was, and that added to their natural ability as singers. But they were already pretty talented, especially Lester McFarland. He played piano, cornet, trombone, guitar, mandolin, violin, and harmonica, and to that I can add ukulele and uh, accordion. He, he played a lot of things. After finishing school, he briefly became a music teacher, and Gardner briefly earned his living as a piano tuner, a very common occupation. I just have a 
a couple of things to say about the way they learned lyrics in particular. And uh, Katie Carpenter, the museum educator here at the American Printing House for the Blind, can go into much more detail about this. But uh, they read musical lyrics using the New York point system of raised dots, which had been invented around 1860. Braille, Louis Braille's system, was began to be developed when he was very young in 1829 and printed his first book in 1829. One of the six known copies of that is in the museum here. For over 60 years, the Braille system and different variations of Braille and the New York Point system competed in what's been called in later years the War of the Dots. After about 1916, Braille really came to dominate. Now, on screen at the moment, I'm showing a sample sheet of the sort that McFarlane and Gardner used to learn the lyrics to songs. Um, this shows the Church in the Wildwood, a very familiar uh, song. There's a church in the valley by the Wildwood. And above each line is, is a sample of the way that would look printed in the New York Point system. Again, the folks here know much, much more than I do about the various systems for uh, creating print or analogs of print for uh, blind education. By 1922, when McFarland was 20 and Gardner was about 25, they decided to make singing their career. They had gotten on very well and become friends here at the school. Uh, and I think the most important point is that they were among the, they were really the first country musicians to popularize what music historians today call the close harmony male duet style, sometimes called the brother duet or brother duo style. They weren't brothers, of course, um, but a lot of later groups that were brothers were influenced by what they did. And they also pioneered the use of mandolin and guitar as their accompaniment. In their early singing career from 1922 through 1924, McFarland taught Gardner the guitar. He may have begun teaching him while they were students here. And they focused, as they say, on duet singing, accompanied by guitar and mandolin, and also harmonica, which Mac would sometimes play using a, a holder around his neck. Both could sing the lead part on verses, but they often switched when they sang the choruses, with McFarland singing the higher part. They first began doing appearances as musicians in schoolhouses, and they also worked on the vaudeville circuit, specifically the Keith Albee circuit. This, this was a circuit uh, of organized uh, entertainment in the vaudeville field. Vaudeville involved usually multiple acts and was put on in a lot of urban theaters all over the country. So once you got employed by a, a vaudeville circuit, and Keith Albee was a very big, important circuit, you would get work. You'd work for a while in one city and could move on to the next. The instruments that McFarland and Gardner played early on at this point in their career in the 20s, uh, McFarland's mandolin was a Gibson instrument, a so-called A model, which is a symmetrical pear-shaped instrument. Gardner played several guitars in the early phase of their musical career together. He played a Gibson L5 master guitar, which was quite a good instrument, and an even better instrument, a Nick Lucas model, named after a prominent performer of the day. 
Now, they were among the very first and best love acts uh, on the new radio station, new at that time in 1925, WNOX in Knoxville, Tennessee. And there, I, I've looked and I've not found any recordings of course, from them on the air. The technology for doing that was underdeveloped, to say the least, in the mid-20s. But a local Knoxville promoter who really liked their music, got them an audition with one of the largest record companies uh, in the United States, Vocalion Records. Vocalion uh, had a sister label, they were actually, that really owned Vocalion, called Brunswick. And unlike some other early country music recordings, um, like Victor and uh, the Victor Record Company and uh, OK Records, the early um, folks who worked for those record companies would occasionally do what they call field recordings. They would take a mass of equipment, there were no tape recorders, to uh, urban hotels like in, in Bristol, Tennessee and Knoxville and so on. But Vocalion didn't do that. They did not do field recordings. So in October 1926, Vocalion brought McFarland and Gardner to New York for their first recording session. And it's also worth pointing out that only about a year before, the entire field of recording had changed over to electrical recording. Before that, it was all acoustic recording, meaning you would position the singers and instruments or orchestras in front of a giant cone, sort of like the, uh, the cone of a Victrola, an early Victrola, only in reverse. So you'd, at the large end would be the musicians, and at the other end, a needle that would vibrate from the, simply the volume and sound of their acoustic recording. Well, by mid-1925, electric recording was the new thing, and that involved microphones. And it was a much better way. It meant you could record fainter instruments. Uh, and so McFarland and Gardner's career as recording artists really more or less coincided with this new technology of electrical recording. <coughs> Most of the early recordings that they made were released, as I said, under the auspices of these two sister labels, Vocalion and Brunswick. Um, in the new recordings, um, these were so popular and important to people all across America because, uh, again, electrical recording really uh, revitalized the uh, growing industry of commercial recordings. And in a lot of newspapers all across the country, they would regularly publish every week or every month uh, listings of the new recordings. There would be, uh, as in an example I'm showing on screen now, a whole column that says, here's Brunswick Records, and it lists Brunswick 107. Hand me down my walking cane back with my Carolina home by Lester McFarland and Robert A. Gardner. They're also shown on this slide on a, an actual record catalog cover and for Vocalion Records called Old Southern Tunes. And we'll talk more about the, the repertoire that they performed, which was really diverse, but it came generally under the title of old time music in that era. The, uh, this is the only picture on the cover of this records catalog cover that I've seen that shows the two of them with the early instruments that they had, but especially it, it shows uh, Lester McFarland with a harmonica holder around his neck, which allowed him to play the harmonica and the mandolin at the same time. 
and you'll, you'll be able to hear that on some of the examples. Now I'm showing at the moment a kind of a chart I made that shows through the years of their long career the number of recordings that were released per year. And the first phase of their career was while they were at WNOX in Knoxville. And that was when they had begun recording for Brunswick and Vocalion. And in the late 1920s, they were one of the very most heavily recorded old-time music acts of any. There were plenty of other musicians in the beginning, the new industry, you might say, of country music. But hardly anyone got recorded more than McFarland and Gardner. So just in those first five years or so, um, in 1926, there were 30 recordings. In 27, 47 recordings, and so on. In 1930, they made 72 records. That, that was a lot. Um, later, the second phase of this chart shows the number of recordings they made per year in the second phase of their career after they had moved to WLS in Chicago, the National Barn Dance, and I'll talk more about that. I want to simply play a little example here. On screen there's a video that will scroll past very quickly showing for 1926 the four sessions that produced 30 songs that year. And um, some of these songs are, are old uh, you know, folk songs. Some of them are quite uh, important. And uh, let's see, this is not controlling the way I hoped it would. <laughs> well, I'll start it. Um, yeah, technology. Yeah, isn't it great? Um, I don't see a mouse cursor. You look there. Oh, that'll do it. Okay. So as this scrolls past, it's listing those 30 songs that were all recorded in 1926. Songs that vary from uh, Love Always Has Its Way to St. Louis Blues and more. The same sort of format is uh, what I've got on screen now. This shows the 1927 sessions. They were in New York City eight times, eight different times in 1927, and those sessions produced 47 songs. Songs like The Blind Child's Prayer, I'll Be All Smiles Tonight, can you, sweetheart, keep a secret? <laughs> the Lightning Express, The Two Orphans, and I'll be playing some examples of these as we go along. The music you're hearing with this is simply a little bit of background for this scrolling list of songs. Uh, a lot of very sentimental material. If you leave your mother, meet her in the skies. And, and a good summary term for a lot of their repertoire, not all of it, was the 19th century parlor ballad. Before there was any kind of radio or any sort of recording, people often entertained themselves at home through a lot of Victorian America. People would play with pianos or small guitars, uh, organs, whatever, and, and sing songs, and a lot of those early songs are very, very sentimental indeed. So those are those Victorian parlor ballads. We'll hear some examples as we go along. I want to divert a minute from the listing of songs they did each year to something else that happened in 1927. Vocalion sent McFarland and Gardner on a tour 
of the Southwest into Texas and nearby states. And that became a very common thing for country musicians later. But McFarland and Gardner were among the very first country acts to go on such a tour. So that's significant. In 1928, there were four New York City sessions, but they produced 21 songs. <laughs> this song is called Woman's Suffrage. <laughs> City Sessions produced 42 songs. And the titles scrolling past are ones like You're Going to Leave the Old Home Gym, Sunny Tennessee, which I'll talk more about later, Don't Fall Too Deep in Love. And uh, on screen, some of these songs I put in, I included the words from the discography, Rejected or Unissued. Occasionally, when they were recording songs, there would be a, a flaw in the wax masters uh, when they were actually trying to make it. So, for many reasons, a, a recording might have to be rejected, couldn't be issued. In other cases, it might remain unissued for a while, uh, simply because they didn't like either the artists or the recording companies, did not like that particular performance. But many of the songs that were unissued, say in 1929, might well be recorded again later. In 1930, there were 11 more sessions in New York and in Atlanta as well. And these, this uh, period produced 72 songs. Songs like My Little Georgia Rose, as a bluegrass guy, I have to say this is not at all the same song that Bill Monroe recorded under that title. But Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, when you know you're not forgotten by the girl you can't forget. <laughs> they did one that I don't have an audio example of called A Comical Ditty, and it consisted entirely of limericks, humorous limericks. <laughs> She's more to be pitied than censured. <laughs> Perished in the snow. There's a lot of tragedy in these Victorian parlor ballads. And a lot of religious material as well. The last one on this list from 1930 is It Pays to Serve Jesus. Interestingly enough, uh, McFarland and Gardner heavily mined the gospel and religious uh, material that was prevalent in the day, but starting in the late 20s, around 1927, there was a real boom in the recordings of gospel and religious music. The recording companies themselves recognized how large that sub-specialty part of the market could be. So in addition to the duets that Mac and Bob recorded, they were paired with some other prominent country music singers of the day, like Vernon Dalhart and a man named George Renault, who was also blind. He was known as the blind minstrel of the uh, Appalachians. And they would pair them with other musicians to form quartets 
and re released a lot of additional records, but not under the name McFarlane and Gardner. They were called uh, the Smoky Mountain Sacred Singers, or later the Old Southern Sacred Singers. And so the McFarlane and Gardner's identities as part of those groups were really hidden for quite a while until discographers uh, figured out who was actually on those recordings. In 1931, McFarlane and Gardner moved to Chicago and WLS, the station there, um, and the National Barn Dance, which was a fairly new uh, uh, radio barn dance program, a very important one. It had started in 1924. There was a record producer named Dave Cap who recommended them to the Cap, to the managers of the barn dance on the strength of their record sales. And the WLS program director at that time, a fellow named George Bigger, decreed that Lester McFarland and Robert A. Gardner was too long a name for artists. So he said, from now on, you're Mac and Bob. That's how they were talked about on the radio, and that's what their records after 1931 all show. The early ones all say McFarland and Gardner, the late ones are Mac and Bob. They also, in the first few years after they went to WLS, were still known as the Knoxville Boys, kind of harking back to their time at WNOX. In 1931, the first two of Mac and Bob's song folios were published. Uh, one was simply called the Mac and Bob Book of Songs Old and New. The second one, which was very similar, the contents differed slightly, uh, emphasized their connection to WLS. It had a, kind of a lightning logo, lightning typescript WLS on the cover as well. And it was important for people to know that they were on WLS. Now, there were a lot of other artists on WLS, and the duo very quickly began to influence, both directly and through that huge radio footprint of 50,000-watt WLS, a lot of later duet acts. There was a group called Carl and Hardy that also used mandolin and guitar. Carl Davis, and uh, his full name was Hartford, Connecticut, Taylor. <laughs> wow, okay. The Monroe brothers, Bill and Charlie, and Bill, of course, known as the father of bluegrass music later, but again, mandolin and guitar duet. The Bolick brothers, who were also known in their recording career as the Blue Sky Boys, and later on, the Leuven brothers, more mandolin and guitar. The McReynolds brothers in bluegrass, more mandolin and guitar. And not in terms of instrumentation, but in terms of close harmony singing style, even the Everly Brothers owe a debt to Mac and Bob. Here's a, a quick list, again, of uh, the, the sessions that they produced during the first part of their WLS years, from between 1931 and 1940. And this is uh, 72 songs. We're hearing Under the Old Sierra Moon. They did Western songs, cowboy songs, religious songs, uh, and a lot of and prison songs, Irish songs, all sorts of things. duet style that they had. In 1932, Mac asked his nephew, who was named Paul Rose, to serve as their chauffeur and secretary and a manager. Uh, at the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, 
all three of them, Mac and Bob and Paul Rose, met Paul's bride-to-be, who was Patsy Montana, a star artist in her own right who later recorded her biggest hit song, I Want to Be a Cowboy's Sweetheart. And so there's a connection for many years with Patsy Montana. In 1933 also, Mac and Bob switched to the American Record Company. It didn't really mean they had left Brunswick and Vocalion, because a lot of the records they had recorded for Vocalion or Brunswick were re-released, but in this case under many different labels and with many different artist names. So some of the labels were Banner, Oriole, Melatone, Conqueror, Perfect, Romeo, Decca. In Canada, the label was called Aurora. In Embassy, in Australia, it was called Embassy. Uh, there was a Zonophone label in England. And uh, they also uh, were released under many different artist names. They weren't necessarily Mac and Bob. They were called the Miller Brothers on the Canadian ones, or Harper Brothers, or the Radio Duo, or the Kentucky Mountain Boys which bluegrass fans like me always associate with J.D. Crowe, who had the Kentucky Mountain Boys. But all of these different names and labels were partly there to help um, augment their record sales, but also the different artist names were probably an attempt to evade paying royalties <laughs> to Brunswick and uh, Vocalion. So many different record labels. I've, I've read that at least one of their songs, one of their most popular songs, was released on 13 different labels. Oh. <laughs> and during the National Barn Dance years at WLS, I've already mentioned that Bill and Charlie, the Monroe brothers, heard Mac and Bob and worked with them. In fact, there's a song I will play later, assuming I have time for it, called Midnight on the Stormy Deep. And Bill Monroe says he absolutely learned that particular song from Mac and Bob. Carl and Hardy, whom I've already mentioned, learned a lot of their style from Mac and Bob. And Bill Bullock, the mandolin player of the Blue Sky Boys, admired the very straightforward playing of Lester McFarlane and used it as a starting point for his own style. Between 1932 and 1934, the Monroe brothers, who had not yet started to do their own recordings, were dancers, exhibition dancers on the National Barn Dance shows. And they traveled in the upper Midwest on WLS road shows, and in the course of that would interact with all the other WLS stars, including Mac and Bob. I have a couple photos on screen now that show McFarland, Mac, and Robert Gardner, Bob. And this was taken for the WLS Prairie Farmer magazine. Prairie Farmer was an agricultural magazine that had started in the mid-19th century, and it actually owned WLS. The call letters um, WLS stood for world's largest store because it was Sears Roebuck's outlet. And, uh, but there was a complicated connection between those companies. In 1933, Mac and Bob often traveled with Gene Autry, who was another national barn dance star in those days, really before he began his career as the most famous singing cowboy. But they would do uh, traveling roundup shows, as Gene Autry called them, and uh, there's a photo that shows Mac and Bob in derby hats and Jean wearing a big woolly fur coat and a cowboy hat, a 10-gallon hat, as they say, during one of these tours. They took a break from WLS for about uh, four years. In 1935, they moved first to KDKA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was among the very first radio stations of any kind in the United States. 
They also worked in Shenandoah, Iowa at KMA, and for a little while they split up. Uh, Bob worked for a little while with another singer, but they came back together as a team in 1939 and remained as a team at WLS until 1950. I'm showing another, the cover of another song folio that was published in the name of Mac and Bob. It says, Mac and Bob's newest and greatest collection of songs, songs you hear on the radio and phonograph records, shows a big picture of Mac and Bob, but all 30 songs in that book were not ones recorded or, as far as I know, issued by Mac and Bob. They were all copyrighted songs by Bob Miller, who was a Memphis, Tennessee songwriter, very prolific guy. Um, he had written one of their biggest hits, 21 Years, a prison song. All the WLS musicians continued to do uh, traveling road shows. Uh, I'm showing a 1941 poster, and Mac and Bob have top billing. This was a poster for a show at the uh, Eagle River, Wisconsin County Fair uh, for uh, the... Uh, the, well, the county fair there, and uh, featuring Mac and Bob and the Hayloft Trio, the Barn Dance Band. Another song folio came out in 1941, and this one uh, emphasizes mountain songs, western songs, and cowboy songs, and they did all of those sorts of things. I have a cast photo on screen from WLS in 1944 that shows, oh, it looks like about 100, 120 performers, it's hard to pick out Mac and Bob, but in the lower left-hand corner of the screen, I've enlarged it now, there's Mac and Bob in their suits. Mac had long since replaced his A-model mandolin with a much newer and fancier Gibson F5 Fern model, and Bob had a newer guitar, a Martin Dreadnought guitar. Um, these, were, these were really high-grade professional instruments, and they were pictured with them in a lot of subsequent photographs. During the WLS years, as I already said, they recorded fewer 78s and at WLS uh, you know, while they were there and at other stations, but they continued to attract fans. Sheet music for their songs was issued. On screen it shows Mac and Bob on the cover of The Man on the Flying Trapeze, popular song that they had done, and Keep a Light in the Window Tonight, which they actually did have a hand in writing. After World War II, both of them turned slowly away from their long, shared musical career. I'm showing a, just one set of pictures that I found of them with families. Mac was married twice and had three children. Bob was married three times. And his second wife helped write some songs. His third wife, well, all their wives were very supportive of them in their careers. In 1946 and seven. They made a few very final recordings on an obscure label from Ohio called Dixie. At least one record was issued in 47, featuring as a song, A Faded Rose, A Broken Heart. After, you know, just to wind up the rest of their careers, uh, they ended their partnership in 1950. Bob and his third wife, Frances, went into religious work as evangelists. And for three months, Max stayed on at WLS. He worked with that other group I had mentioned, Carl and Hardy, and they were billed as Carl and Hardy and Mac. And then Carl and Hardy left. Mac had his own program for a short time on WLS. After all that ended, Mac taught for three months at the Illinois School for the Blind in Jacksonville, Illinois. And he claimed that he wrote a Braille instruction book, How to Play the Ukulele, but we've not been able to find a copy of that, and I'm still seeking that. Mac 
He also then began to work in the therapy and recreation department at the Chicago State Hospital. He tuned their pianos uh, and entertained and taught music to some of the folks there. In 1964, there was the 40th anniversary of the National Barn Dance, and that aired on WGN-TV and on radio, and Mac and Bob reappeared on that. Mac finally retired from Chicago State Hospital in 1970, and around 1973, they both moved to Tennessee and lived near each other in Oliver Springs, which was the birthplace of uh, Robert Gardner. After their deaths, Bob in 1978 and Mac in 1984, both were buried in adjacent plots in the Oliver Springs, Tennessee Cemetery. Page 3. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And my friend, you want to introduce guests, please? Yes. Um, fellow Lions, it's our privilege tonight to have uh, Major Pamela with us. Her husband's on uh, disaster duty, as I understand it. Yes. Someplace. <coughs> so he wasn't able to come. Thank you for coming, Major. Well, before we get uh, carried away, I don't want to forget that um, the Salvation Army has, I don't want to say policy or a procedure because it just kind of dampens the mood of it, <laughs> the privilege of thanking you uh, for your support. So we made these uh, certificates of appreciation. So on behalf of the uh, Salvation Army, if I could present this to the uh, rights and I have one for the Lions International Club. So okay. thank you for your support. God bless you. And may God always bless the Lions Club. We love what you do with the uh, vision, the glasses, and you see them everywhere. Uh, a little play on words there. <laughs> <laughs> prizes here. Does anybody know what year the Salvation Army started? 1844. Oh, 1865. Uh, I just kind of, in a nutshell, wrote it down so you can have this. You are the very first to get this. This is literally hot off the press. We just folded these today. So um, if there is a mistake on there, be polite and tell me in private. Because <laughs> I'm a perfectionist and I want everything to be just right, you know. If you open up our mission statement, you can read that on your own. This, of course, is a picture of William Booth. And yes, uh, he is the founder, 1865. Uh, this is his famous quote, I love it, I wanna say it to you. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, while there is one drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, 
while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I will fight, I will fight to the very end. So there's his famous quote, now you have it. There's a, a few programs that we're doing. I'm just going to let you read this on your own. But we do everything from, they say, from the cradle to the grave. We even perform funerals. But um, this lets you know what we're doing here uh, at the Salvation Army in the Portland area. A lot of calls come in for us to pick up donations and um, social services and things like that. We don't do that at our core building, but what I did was I put the address and information where it says social services. That's at the LAC, which is the Louisville Area Command, and that's located at 911 Brook Street. So if you have anybody that wants to donate for the South, to the Salvation Army for the disaster, uh, you can give them that number there where it says 778-1912. Uh, and I should have printed, uh, I already saw a typo here. Not a typo, but something I missed. The telephone number is 671-4900. Oh, here it is on the back side. Where it says our mission. These are all of the programs. <coughs> open it up to this. If you're looking up here, that's where it's at. Underneath our mission, uh, LAC 6714900. And these are all the programs that we provide. Emergency shelter, transitional housing, veterans transitional housing, red kettle, which um, was already mentioned. We are doing a new thing. We're teaching homeless people how to cook. And it's a 12-week program. When they graduate, they get a job right away. Matter of fact, they're calling weeks ahead of time, knowing that we have a class that's full of students, and they're nipping at their feet trying to get them to get hired. So it's a very good culinary program. So we're real proud about that. And then of course emerging disasters which was mentioned earlier too. And then a lot of people don't know the Salvation Army is first and foremost a church that scares people. Oh well you know I don't want to donate because I you know I have a church of my own. Well um, okay but that's fine too. But I was saying with Miss Judy here that we're not in rivalry, nor are we trying to upstage uh, the Red Cross or United Way or other churches or other organizations. Uh, they're a business. We're a ministry. We function on donations, volunteer work, all the support, the support that you give us, the girls would not have been able, the kids would not have been able to have fun. And there's a picture of them on your plaque there, uh, your frame, uh, to have fun if it weren't for the support of those that are generous. So that's pretty much all I'm going to say. Um, if you need to get a hold of us, uh, you can tape that up on the wall and throw darts at it if you want to. That's a picture of my husband, me and my husband. He's the more handsome one. Just don't do what like some people did and say, uh, 
Brother Pam and Sister Dean. <laughs> Should that be Anyway, so stick it up there and um, enjoy that. And if you want to make copies of it, you have my permission to do so. Page four, the Sound Prince calendar. On September 27, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have its next peer support group meeting from 12 to 2 p.m. at the Bluegrass Council office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. For more information, call 859-259-1834. September 28 is the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision support group meeting from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. More information is available by calling 502-895-4598. On September 29, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have another roundabout, education and technology at 3.30, discussion at 5, dinner, $5 per person at 6, and games and crafts 7 to 10. The main topic of that evening will be food. It will be held at United Crescent Hill Ministries. For more information, call 502-895-4598. Looking ahead to October, on October 1, the Greater Louisville Council will have its committee meetings by phone. Advocacy is at 7 p.m. and Education, Activities, and Technology, the EAT Committee, is at 8 p.m. Phone 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On October 3, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have a telephone support group and business meeting at 8 p.m. The telephone number is 605-475-6006 and you can enter code 294444 to join the call. On October 5, the American Council of Blind Lions will have its next conference call meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time at 712-432-3900. The code is 796096 and the program will be presented by a blind past district governor. On October 6, the next GLCB roundabout will take place there will be Education and Technology at 3.30, Discussion at 5, Dinner at 6, and Games and Crafts from 7 to 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call 502-895-4598 for more information. On October 8, KCB Next Generation will have its monthly conference call at 8 p.m. 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On October 10, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will have its October meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue in Owensboro. For information, call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418 or Bill Roberts at 270-485-8170. On October 11, the KCBPR Membership Committee will meet at 8 p.m. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. The 
Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision Support Group will meet at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville on October 12 from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. For more information, call 502-895-4598. Also on October 12, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its next monthly conference call meeting at 605-475-4700, enter code 155719. The meeting takes place at 7 p.m. On November 17 and 18, the Kentucky Council of the Blind will hold its 2017 convention at the Ramada Inn on Zorn Avenue in Louisville. Room rates are $80 per room for up to four people in a room. You can make reservations beginning September 15 by calling 502-897-5101. Be sure and mark your calendars for this event. And on December 2 is the All-Council Christmas Party in Louisville at United Crescent Hill Ministries. For more information, contact 502-895-4598. December 3 is the ACB Radio Holiday Auction. Beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time until midnight or until all items are sold. For more information, Visit www.acb.org or see your current issue of the Braille Forum for more details. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.